That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Welcome to your online coffee break, where we discuss bite-sized topics that inspire, educate, and entertain. Here's your host, a software innovator, award-winning marketer, and astronomy and space buff, Chuck Fields. Hello, thanks for joining us today for your online coffee break. Today, I'd like to welcome to our show my special guest, Dr. James Hansen. Dr. Hansen is a retired professor of history at Auburn University in Alabama. He's an expert in aerospace history and the history of science and technology. Dr. Hansen is the writer of First Man, The Life of Neil A. Armstrong, a biography which documents the life of the famous astronaut. First Man has been adapted into a movie by Universal Pictures and is directed by Academy Award winner Damien Chazelle, starring Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong. Online Coffee Break. Thanks for joining me today, Jim. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Now, Jim, I understand you've written several books and articles relating to aviation and aerospace. What drew you to that field? Well, uh, I graduated with my PhD in the history of science and technology from Ohio State in 1981. Nice. And just Kind of out of the blue, uh, literally, I get a call from the NASA history office, which I didn't even know existed at the time, hmm. and they were looking for someone to write a book about one of the earliest NASA research facilities. And you know, the job market being what it was, uh, and I, I had been applying for university positions, but uh, I thought, oh, this is interesting. It really sort of create a postdoctoral uh, situation for me. Yeah. So I went and visited the NASA Center and talked to people and went to Washington and met with NASA headquarters people and decided that that might be the best, best path for me. So it was really taking that first opportunity with NASA back in the early 1980s. And then once I did that, that first book, uh, one thing led to another and I just became kind of quickly, you know, um, somebody that was recognized as someone who knew a little bit about the history of flight, both aeronautics and space, and so one opportunity just led to another. Now, right now, I know it wasn't easy to to secure the rights to talk with Neil Armstrong about it. What led you to that, and how hard, how hard of a process was that to end up writing his biography? Yeah, well, it was it was difficult. I could write a book just about how that all happened, actually. I bet. It took a while. Uh, I mean, I had, I think the key was that I had a, I, I was about 20 years into my career, not quite 20, but close to it. And mm-hmm. so I had already published a number of books uh, in the history of science and technology related to flight. And and when I wrote to Neil, I mean, I just got it in my head that I wanted to do a biography. And and and, and, and a lot of the astronauts had already had their own, you know, they, they had hired writers or they had done their own uh, autobiographies. And I knew that no one had done anything on Armstrong, and I heard, had heard stories from my friends in NASA that you know, Neil was, you know, some called him a recluse, but it turns out that really, I don't think, is an accurate description. He was just a very private guy, and there was a lot of things that people wanted him to do that he, he decided not to. But I thought, All right, I'll give it a try. I, I, I got an address, just a post office box address from where he was living in Lebanon, Ohio at the time, yeah. uh, after leaving NASA. He had bought a farm outside of Cincinnati and became a professor of aerospace engineering in Cincinnati. So anyway, I, I got this address because um, it was hard you know, to even do that and wrote him a, a, a letter. And he wrote me back a very nice, polite, um, um, just not at this, not at this time. You know? <laughs> sure. He was very nice about it, but it was clear that you know he wasn't quite ready. And so what I did was I didn't entirely give up. 
but at the same time, I didn't pester him because I knew that wasn't going to work. Right. So when his birthday rolled around in August, uh, I think it would have been about 2000, the year 2000, mm-hmm. I sent him a box, a gift box that had two or three of my books in it. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, I guess I was hoping that that might open the door, make him reconsider a bit. Yeah, but nice. at the same time, I think I felt would be nice to have uh, to know that Neil Armstrong on his bookshelf had some of my books. Absolutely. So it was was really, you know, him reading one of the books and writing back to me and my work had always taken, you know, the engineering side of things seriously, even though I wasn't an engineer, I had written about topics that really related to engineering Mm -hmm. uh, of airplanes and spacecraft. And so he knew I would take that side of of him seriously. And I think in the end, that was really critical decision and going forward see i think that's amazing because when you did go forward uh, i believe you actually have 55 hours of recorded time with him so you you spent more time with him than a lot of people ever did in in the history so you got to see a side of him that i i just could not imagine and think is incredible yeah that was key i mean the agreement between him between him and i you know i interview time with him was was really essential and you know i did end up having about 55 hours of taping but i did it over a long stretch of time because mm-hmm. you know interviewing and being interviewed can get quite tedious and tiresome and sure. and we had it and we were covering his entire life story which at that point he was in his early, early 70s i guess mm-hmm. uh died when he was 82 in, in the year 2012 so right. what i would do is we would we would set up i would come to cincinnati for three or four days and I would have sent him the questions in advance for those three or four days. And then when we were done with that, I'd go off and be interviewing other people or going into archives to read documents or whatever. And then another two or three months later, I'd come back to Cincinnati and we'd do another three or four days. And so that adds up, you know, just in terms of the recording time, that adds up to about 55 hours. But I had a lot more time with him than that. Uh, um, you know, that's just the recording time. And mm-hmm. so I also... Neil was very good about email, um, and I was able to, you know, if there were follow-up questions that I had, Neil was very good and generous about responding immediately to email questions. So, as you know, if there were follow-ups that I had, I, I never, I mean, a couple of times I might have bothered him with phone calls, but he was so good about looking at his email that I would just say, you know, could you expand on this or, you know, uh, give me a little more information about that. And so, in the end, I had, oh my gosh, something like 800 emails from, you know, oh, wow. and all of this, everything, the tapes, the emails, everything I have from him. When I was done with the book, I um, I donated them to Purdue University, where Neil went to school, Excellent. and where Neil's papers also were going. And so, all of, everything I collected is, is accessible to researchers at Purdue. See, I thought that was excellent. And I believe you had an interesting idea for Purdue University for how they could make those accessible to the public in the future. Well, yeah, and it's and it may still become a reality. The technology it really was uh, an idea that that I had and had discussion with James Mullins, who was the head of libraries and archives at Purdue. Mm-hmm. And it would have been in the early two thousand. I, I kind of had this idea that you know there would be a way te- technologically to sort of digitize everything related to Armstrong, including video uh, and audio and documents and everything and make it with it all digitized making that available where people on the internet could type in or speak in a question um, for Neil Armstrong and the technology would cue 
through language recognition, word recognition, whatever, mm-hmm. would cue uh, an answer from Neil. And at the wow. time, I mean, we just, um, I remember Dr. Mullins at Purdue thought, oh, man, that's really cool. We might have to look into that. But it really involves the technology of artificial intelligence. Right. You need to have algorithms that really are sophisticated uh, that can do this language recognition. And and in the interim, in, in the 15 years or so since I thought about this, uh, the technology for this has really been developed uh, in a couple of different places, including at the University of Southern California, mm-hmm. uh, where I've been, I've been doing some work with them now. And it's really a way of, of actually creating uh, an interactive conversation where you could have an app or you could have a kiosk at a museum or science center and to basically activate the system, ask Neil Armstrong a question, and if you know you have all the database in there, and so you get an answer that's that cues up based on what the question was asked, and so you can sort of have a conversation. Now it gets a little more complicated because, you know, unfortunately, we didn't. Have, I mean, you could you could do this with my audio, but we didn't do additional video mm-hmm. inter- interviews, but. Through the use of avatars and holograms, you could actually create a virtual Neil Armstrong that would <laughs> have real comments. I mean, it could be his real voice or a synthesized voice. So, I mean, the technology is now present <laughs> where you could really create a Neil Armstrong that is available to us 24-7, which is maybe doing him a disservice because Neil likes his privacy a lot. Right. Turn this trick on him and make him available to us all the time. So I think something like that in the next couple of years is going to, is going to happen. Uh, I'm working with this group out at, at USC, and we're going to see what happens with it. Well, I think that's incredible. Now, back to Neil. I, I guess so many people, so many of us, including me, we just have so much admiration for him. There's so many stories that I knew of that a lot of people didn't. Ain't I know you know a lot more. But I remember hearing for the first time several years ago um, about his loss of his daughter uh, when she was just two years mm-hmm. old in 1962, uh, before uh, you know going to the moon and everything, and just how that actually, I, I believe you said, it turned him into an even more driven astronaut, uh, which is in- incredible on that. Um, are there other rare stories about, about Neil that, that you hope your, your book conveys that you think people should know? Well, I, I certainly that revelation. I mean, that that um, is become has become generally known. But when my book came out in two thousand five, mm-hmm. um, the the death of the daughter, or even the existence of the daughter, was not not generally known. I mean, right. there were close friends of Neil's, uh, fellow astronauts, who did not even know that he ever had a daughter because Neil it was something Neil didn't talk about mm-hmm. with anybody, even with <laughs> didn't even talk about it with his wife. Unfortunately, wow. that's and that's something that the book dis- book discusses and is actually shown in the movie as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there was, um, Neil was kind of, you know, proves the old adage, still waters run deep. I mean, he's, I mean, he was a very difficult person because he was so introverted and modest, but, in, but could be outgoing in certain ways and at certain times. Mm-hmm. But, you know, trying to bring him, bring his real character out to the surface so readers could see it and now audiences in the theater can see it um, is challenging. I mean, I guess I had certain, you know, certain notions about who he was just based on what everybody else had seen uh, in the media, which wasn't much. And, and, and the missions, space missions themselves, especially Apollo 11. And so it's kind of hard. I mean, one of the tasks I had as biographer was to 
mean, here he is, a very iconic figure, one of the world's great icons of the mm-hmm. 20th century and, and beyond. And But I had to... You know, I, I had to try to learn and discover who the who the man was underneath the iconography. Uh, but at the same time, I wanted to understand. You know, I was writing not just a biography; I was writing an iconography because I wanted to study the cultural projections that had been placed on Neil, uh, what society thought was true of Neil, because they maybe wanted it to be true. You know, and um, yes. there were all kinds of myths and stories that became attributed to even. Even people that you would think would have told the truth, uh, people that grew up with him, like in high school in Ohio, you know, some of the stories they told, you would think that they were accurate because, you know, they actually did know Neil. But it was like after he became world famous, they, by telling stories about him that maybe were a bit inflated in terms of the the involvement of that particular person, you know, you, you end up building up a lot of stories and many of them turn out to be, you know, you know, some of them are totally wrong. Mm-hmm. And some of them are greatly exaggerating. And the only way I could, you know, really find out what the case was was to ask Neil specifically because he's, you know, he, in many cases he was the only one that could tell you whether it's a true or false thing. Mm-hmm. And given his personality, I mean, he didn't go around if somebody had been telling stories that he knew that wasn't more true. You know, other people might want to go on the record and say, well, this is not a true story, and I don't I want that cleared in paper. But Neil wasn't like that. Neil just sort of, if people told stories, well, they told stories, you know, and he just you know, he just tried to ignore it, ignore, it, ignore it as much as possible. But I had to try to sort through the and, and see the facts from the fiction. And so that was what really surprised me, not so much about him, but how much that had been told about him uh, was really not right, you know. And I had to, I had to try to put all that together. Huh. Now, see, I think that's fascinating because I, I think one thing that really surprised me is, of course, I heard the rumors. Oh, of course, he hid in a space growing up, and it was more he wanted to understand how airplanes worked and the engineering behind it. So he's definitely drawn, I think, to the engineering side of things. Um, yeah, and it was it was really airplanes were the passion. I mean, I think one of the stories that sort of gets perpetuated after the fact is, you know, that they, there were stories told that, well, Neil was really into science fiction as a boy, right. and he was very into astronomy and looking at telescopes. And those stories really just don't turn out to be very accurate. And, and because, I mean, what Neil was was just the, he loved airplanes from the time he was a little boy. He built model after model after model. He went to Purdue to become an aircraft designer, you know, so he entered an engineering program. He had a Navy scholarship, so two years you know, into his education, the Korean War breaks out, so mm-hmm. he has to report for flight training, and he ends up being a, a fighter pilot with a naval aviator flying 78 missions over, you know, over Korea. And then when he gets back, he finishes his degree at Purdue, and the technology of flight, you know, by now we're in the 50s, and you know, the introduction of rockets and jets into the into the picture and so what Neil, what carries Neil into space is really not so much not so much a personal decision as the technology itself is is, is cresting in a certain kind of way. And as someone who's you know deeply become you know a, a trained professional um, and deeply knowledgeable about aer- aeronautical engineering, you know the technology moves then into a test pilot role that takes him into the most experimental airplanes that are flying jets and eventually rockets in the X-15. And so, you know, by the time the space program comes along in the late 50s, early 60s, he's just kind of at the time in his life and his professional development that he becomes a part of that. 
So it really didn't take a decision for him as a boy to, you know, I'm going to be going to space. I'm going to, I'm interested in the moon and the planets. It really wasn't the, the case. It was just his passion for airplanes um, and his professional training moved him along with the technology. So it was really that, that movement of the technology to the point of having rockets that could lift us off and get us out of the atmosphere that, that you know, he just went along for the ride and, and, <laughs> and uh, taught us a lot about how to do it. Well, definitely a fascinating story, and I could see why not only it's just an amazing book, but why it was turned into a movie. And as I understand, uh, you were on the movie set quite frequently as First Man was being filmed. What was that like? Well, I was there for most every day of the shoot, and I, it was exciting, but I can also say it was it was somewhat stressful for me hmm. because I felt such a responsibility to Neil. I mean, I, had, I was his only authorized biographer. You know, I, I knew that, um, you know, that, that Hollywood, that movies were going to have to take certain liberties to, to make the cinema, the drama, um, you know, make it make it a movie worthy thing uh but at the same time you know i was concerned about um you know the movie makers taking things maybe too far and, and right. where it wasn't we'd no longer have the meal that that i would recognize or his family would recognize so that made it a little stressful for me you know because there were times i spoke up and you know and had to have deep conversations <laughs> with you know Screenwriter or with with one of the producers, uh, but overall they treated me with with great respect. They treated treated me as a as an important resource, and uh, they still are doing that. And so I think nice. we've come. I mean, now that I've seen the movie a few times, uh, saw it again last night here at the Toronto Film Festival, and um, I, it's I, I'm very very happy with it. I think they've done a, tr- a tremendous job, and and it's as close to the real thing as you're going to get. See, I think that's excellent. Now, I, I know, obviously, you were in Toronto uh, for that premiere. What's it been like seeing the premieres of the movies? What's the response been? Well, it's you know, it's always exciting to see how the audience reacts. I mean, it's been fun to see people that I where it was you know, the movies you know, the shoot was has been finished for a few months now, and I've had some interaction with the director and some people associated with the movie, looking at you know, making comments on the first cuts and things, but. Um, um, what's really exciting at the film festival is to is to actually sit in an audience with people that have never seen the movie and had nothing to do with making the movie mm-hmm. and seeing how they react and and watching the tears being wiped away in some cases, hearing the laughter at, at, at the appropriate places, uh, hearing the great rounds of applause at the end of the movie. Uh, and then we stay around and, and, you know, at a film festival, usually they bring a number of member of the cast and, and that comes come on stage at the end of the movie. And there's a person who leads a, a Q and a, a question and answer period and the audience, um, you know, we did this last night and the audience, you know, was so, uh, excited and interested in asking questions and learning more about it all. And so getting a chance to, to watch people watch the movie experience the movie that you tried so hard and you put so much energy in to, to have that finally you know get that reaction back uh, is you know it just really makes makes you feel good and 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 uh, hopefully i mean all the reviews virtually every one of the reviews has been a rave review of the movie and it should you know uh, it, sh- it should be a movie that a lot of people go see 
Excellent. Well, Jim, I, I cannot wait to see it. Personally, I'm just so thankful that you've written such an awesome book, uh, that you were able to portray Neil Armstrong the way he really is, and then to consult on the movie set, I just think is fantastic. And I know you're extremely busy, and I just want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to uh, join us today. Thank you so much. No, my pleasure. Online Coffee Break. Wow, I really enjoyed my conversation today with Dr. Hansen. His book, First Man, is incredible. Highly suggest you pick it up at your favorite bookstore. And also the movie, First Man, is out October 12th. Uh, I personally cannot wait to see it. I hope you go out and see it too. If you'd like to find out more about the movie, you can visit their website at firstman.com. I want to thank Dr. Hansen for joining us today. I want to thank you for tuning in today as well. If you'd like to comment on today's topic, just go to our website, onlinecoffeebreak.com. Leave us a comment there. You can also call us at 317-862-4700. Leave a comment there. Who knows, we just might play it on the air. We'd also love it if you'd follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Online Coffee Break. And also subscribe to us using iTunes, your favorite podcast app. Thanks again for listening today. See you next time. God bless.